Hi, everyone. Welcome to this edition of Roar Lions Radio. I'm your host, Bill DeFilippo. My co-host, Nick Pollock, is here. Nick, 1-0 this week. Yeah. 2-0, because I'm a Seahawks fan, so hey, we just got to win. It's really, It's really weird. Like, if I just think about, like, three years ago, how opposite of the experience was of going from Penn State on Saturdays to the Seahawks on Sundays. And so far this season, it's going from the Penn State offense to the Seahawks offense is like getting whiplash. Yeah, I mean, what, so what was the final score on the uh, Seahawks game? 12 to 9. I'm sorry, what? 12 to 9. Well, uh, so Penn State scored a few more points than either the Seahawks or the other team that they played, who was... Niners. The Niners. Uh, Penn State scored 56 points in a 56 nothing win over Georgia State. Trace McSorley had a big game, 309 yards through the air, 18 for 23 passing, four touchdowns, no interceptions. Saquon Barkley, kind of a quiet game on the ground, 10 rushes for 47 yards, but the Nittany Lions uh, altogether 24 carries, 166 yards. And then through the air, Saquon Barkley had four catches and a touchdown. Saeed Blacknell had three and a touchdown. Deshaun Hamilton had two and a touchdown. Brandon Polk had a touchdown catch. Tommy Stevens had a touchdown catch. It was a very, very fun day watching the Penn State offense. And then, of course, on the And other- most importantly, Billy Fessler comp- completed the pass for eight yards that was also Jonathan Holland's first catch. Oh, awesome. So, yeah, I mean, this was uh, towards the end. It was definitely one of those games where it was kind of. Well, Fessler, comp- correct me if I'm wrong, his only. His completion only happened because Stevens got his helmet knocked off, right? Yep. All right, I thought so. So there was stuff like that. There was Tommy Stevens throwing for what I believe was his first da- first touchdown. Uh, Nick, correct me if I'm wrong. Yep. Yep, he also caught his first touchdown. We, uh, we saw Brandon Polk catch a touchdown on the other side of the ball. Uh, we saw guys like Gitor Grossmatos uh, pick up a fumble. Daniel Joseph forced a fumble. Lamont Wade was second on the team with five tackles. Penn State made it a point to go out there and get a lot of young guys some playing time. And it was kind of what we expected. I mean, the offense might have been a little bit more dominant than we might have thought because, you know, 56 points is uh, always something admirable. The defense just did not break against uh, Georgia State. Zero points. Uh, They weren't able to get too terribly much going through the air, through the ground. I mean, they had 320 Yards, but they also destroyed Penn State in the time of possession game, 38-47 to 21-13. Nick, what did we learn from this game? Um, Not too much because Georgia State's not very good. But <clears throat> we, I mean, for one thing, we learned that last week was probably an aberration more than a trend for Trace McSorley. He looked very good in this one. And Georgia State's pass defense has been pretty good. They didn't look very good on Saturday, but his, at least for the past few years, they've been a pretty good unit. Um, we learned that this team and this offense is determined to do whatever they can to get Tommy Stevens on the field and get him the ball. We learned that the rushing attack is still very much a question mark, and which is weird because it's Saquon Barkley, but the run blocking just wasn't there. Um, part of that could be due to the fact that Brendan Mann was sidelined. It sounds like he'll be back next week, so hopefully that'll be remedied a bit. But we also learned that Penn State, as we already knew, it was kind of confirmed. We haven't really gotten a chance to see all of them in action, or at least all these guys at once in action like this, but we learned that Penn State has plenty of competent competent runners behind Saquon Barkley. We saw Miles Sanders and Andre Robinson both go for big touchdown runs. Um, we learned that the receivers are not dead. They are, in fact, alive. They can catch touchdowns. And we learned that night games are good. Yeah, night games are very good. There was one point where I don't remember when it was, but there was just this visual. I saw it on television and then got confirmed with a few pictures and stuff like that, where for whatever reason, everyone thought it would be cool to just turn their phone camera lights on and hold them up in the air and... Uh, for my wrestling fans out there, they'll get this reference, but it looks like when Bray Wyatt walks to the ring and there's all the quote-unquote fireflies. I mean, it's... I, I think the thing... Yeah, that's my favorite. Yeah. 
it, trust me, everyone who watches wrestling and listens to this podcast, I don't know how many of them there are, but they will understand that reference. It's probably just like me, Dan, and Rob, but whatever. But there was something, sorry about the voice cracking there, but there was something I liked it. kind of, yeah. So I do this thing on football weekends where I go to bars and uh, bands play music, and when Mr. Brightside comes on, I just scream as loud as I can. And every Sunday when there's a home game, you guys hear what that sounds like. Back to what I was saying, there's just something like kind of special now. I don't know exactly what it is. Well, no, scratch, I do know exactly what it is. It's easier to support a good team than it is a mediocre team or an alright team or anything like that. But this game, in a way, was almost confirmation that Penn State is, I don't want to say back or anything like that, but this was a game that fans had a million reasons to not attend. You know, third home game in the row, it's against a bad opponent. You know, it's a night game, but there are going to be other night games, and even though it was a night game, you may not want to be out in the fields all day when you could be doing stuff, and... All these things, and yet the stadium was still packed, and people were still excited and still getting juice for from watching Penn State go against a not great Georgia State team. I, I go back to later in the game, DeAndre Tompkins is back to field a punt. When he catches the football, everyone has the same reaction that we've heard every time he catches the ball. There is a hunger, and there is an excitement and a sense of anticipation around Penn State football right now that in past years when they play a team like Georgia State, regardless of when the game is happening, that's just not there. And we're seeing what it's like for the first time in a while for Penn State fans to cheer on a team that is objectively one of the best teams in the country. And I thought they showed that. I mean, I want to go back to what you said about McSorley. I thought this game was kind of what we expected. I know we mentioned this on uh, the midweek show last week, but it was a chance for McSorley to get into a rhythm, uh, work on connecting with his receivers, uh, for him to get Saquon Barkley the ball and have Barkley go 85 yards and look like the Millennium Falcon out there, just or what, or the one from Spaceballs that gets up to ludicrous speed or whatever. It was just awesome. I mean, we saw... Basically, the closest thing we have seen this season to a fully formed Penn State passing attack. Uh, but I, I do actually kind of want to go back to something you said, which is, you know, we're at the end of the non-con right now. We're about to get into Big Ten play. Penn State's going to Iowa at the end of this week for its first road game of the year. And I think it's, if I were to say, what is the strength of the team right now? There were a couple things that we could possibly point out. But I want to know, Nick, what is, through the non-con, the thing that has caused the most concern for you? The most concern would, I mean, I think there's really only one option, and that would be the offensive line. And it it's still been better. And the fact that there are still so many young faces on there means that there's still so much more um, possibilities for improvement. But the lack of a consistent push in the run blocking game has been disappointing and it's gotten better as the game has gone on because Penn state's offense has been able to wear teams down. And eventually that just leads to more opportunities in the run game. But it's a little concerning to see them not really be able to open up much of anything at all for Barkley up front, because that if there's one criticism of Saquon Barkley, one only one I could think of, it's that he, if there's something not there, because he has such an insane ability to improvise and to turn nothing into something, occasionally he does get caught just waiting a split second too long behind, waiting for a hole to open up, and ends up getting caught in the backfield. And that's that's not on him. That's something that's on the offensive line. And that's something that, with a, with a better offensive line, we probably could just go ahead and say he's perfect and there are no problems and it's not even a problem but <laughs> i it's it it has been concerning to see the lack of a push in the run game yeah i i look at the penn state's three running backs 
more or less three running backs. Saquon Barkley, Miles Sanders, Andre Robinson. Barkley, 10 carries for 47 yards. Sanders, three for 44. Robinson, two for 39. You look at those numbers, and they look fantastic. They look like the numbers that... They look like numbers that show that Penn State's running attack is really fully formed and terrifying and all these things. But then you look at Barkley. His longest run was 33 yards. So other than if you take that one out, and I know this isn't a great thing to do for a million different reasons, but if you take out the 33-yard run, he has nine carries for 14 yards. Miles Sanders had a 29-yard run. You take that away from his 44, he has two carries for 15 yards, which for a small sample size is fine, but that's not like life-altering or anything. Andre Robinson, Long was a 41-yard run. Take that one out, he had one carry for negative two yards. So I, I want, I'm, I'm always interested in seeing what happens in the non-con because I so, so much think it's just teams loading up the box and... They're going, we're terrified of Saquon Barkley. We don't want him to beat us. And I want to see what happens as the passing game gets a little more into it. Or whether we see teams try and do the thing where it's, listen, if we have to get beat by one of two things, we're going to let it be the passing game, even if the passing game is on. And we're, we're just not letting Saquon Barkley beat us. And that's our singular objective. And if McSorley is able to beat us with his arm, he's able to beat us with his arm, whatever. Uh, I mean, that's the logical thing for a defense to do. You have a much better chance of creating a turnover if the ball's on the air than if the ball's on the ground. Granted, that leads to more big plays if you're letting it go through the air. But, I mean, I I wouldn't blame a defense coordinator for saying we're not going to let Saquon Barkley just gash us for 18 yards at a time. I'd rather have them earn it through the air. Yeah, and there's... You know, there's something about when Barkley really gets cooking, that gives the offense as a whole a little bit more of a shot in the arm, and I guess teams want to stop that. Whatever. This is something that I think it's going to be, you know, looking at Penn State's schedule in the next couple of weeks, Iowa, I think that's a team that's going to be very white bread, very bread and butter. They're going to want to try and win that battle in the trenches. Indiana is going to try and play Penn State very physically. Uh, Northwestern is Northwestern. We know what we're going to get out of them. And then Michigan and Ohio State. So I think we're going to see in these next five weeks of Penn State football, Penn State going up against five teams that are, again, really going to try and put the onus on just not letting Saquon Barkley beat them on the ground. Uh, I also want to mention, just because I've seen this around a ton, uh, there seem to be people who are really concerned with Penn State uh, getting to quarterbacks. Uh, looking at this week's game, uh, Penn State had three sacks. Uh, Antonio Shelton had half a sack. Shaka Tony had half a sack. Manny Bowen had half a sack. And Daniel Joseph had one and a half sacks. Uh, there was the same number against uh, Akron. Jarvis Miller had one. Ryan Buckles had one. Curtis Cawthorn and Tyrell Chavis combined for half of a sack. And then there were five against Pitt. You know, Pitt put, had a quarterback in the game who literally, if you were able to get by one dude, you were going to hit him. And it seems like, you know, you look at those numbers and they're not bad, but it seems like people are concerned about consistently getting quarterback pressure. Uh, I haven't looked at, you know, Bill C's numbers or anything like that, so I can't... Well, I haven't seen his updated numbers because he hasn't put them out yet, but when well, I look but at things before like... This week, oh, before, this week, before this week, their defensive line havoc yeah, rates in the top 10. I don't, I don't think it's... Overall I mean, havoc just like, fifth. Yeah, just looking at sacks is not doesn't is not at all indicative of yeah. quarterback pressure. Right, it's right. part of it for sure, but um, I don't. I mean, I agree that they they could be doing better. They're they're certainly not yeah. doing a bad job. I mean, of they're, they're they're not hitting the quarterback on every play. Of course, they could do better. Like that, that's one of those things where there is always going to be a way that they could do better. But you know, realistically, I think they're the unit is doing fine. I think. Any uh, any kind of criticism of the defensive line has to kind of take into account that it's a relatively young line. Torrance Brown has never been a full-time, you know, it's never really been a full-time thing for him. Sharif Miller, same thing. Ryan Buckholt, same thing. Shaka Tony, Shane Simmons, Yitor Grossmato, same. Like, it's still a line that's trying to figure out what it is, I think. 
So I'm not too terribly concerned with this. Uh, I just wanted to put it out there and see if you were maybe uh, if you were conservative to me. I don't think this is necessarily too big of a deal. No, I'm not worried about this. Uh, pass rush is also something that really with every team gets better as the year goes on, especially yep. with when you have yep. young guys like this. I mean, every snap that Gross Matos and Simmons and Tony and Joseph and all those guys get, they're just going to keep getting better. So and, and I'm not worried about that. I can even argue that with Brown and Miller and Buckholz, it's the same thing. Just yep. since they're so new to this. I also want to let Penn State fans n- you don't have to worry because worry too terribly much because one, let's face it, at this point we're looking at two games. We're looking at Michigan and Ohio State. Penn State wins those two games and wins the Big Ten. I think it's basically that simple. Michigan, yeah. the good news is that Wilton Spate is the least mobile person to ever live and JT Barrett forgets how to throw a football. So, I think as long as the defensive line is, you know, at 85% of what it needs to be by those games, it'll be fine. Uh, but for now, like, I, I don't think that was a huge issue uh, during the non-con. And, you know, non-con's over now. Penn State's 3-0. and uh, It's 152-0, and 56-0. And let's go back to when we were sitting here talking before the Akron game. Has your outlook on the season changed in any way now that you know the non-conference is over? My thoughts on Penn State itself have not changed. I still feel basically right. the same about the team. The only thing that would have would is different is my opinions of the other teams in the Big Ten. But even still, I I don't really care that Michigan and Ohio State have struggled a little bit. They're still both really good teams, and I don't see either of those games being any easier now than they were at the beginning of the year. Ohio State's just so explosive. They have so many so many home run hitters um, speed-wise on offense. It all it takes is one good slant pass to unlock that offense. So I, I'm not I, – I mean, I guess I feel slightly better about both of those games for Penn State in that at least both those teams haven't been – just rolling over everyone they've seen. But I, I feel pretty much the same, I'd say. Yeah, I I think I'm kind of – I've been – and it's, again, it's Georgia State and it's Akron that we're looking at mostly when it comes to talking about how explosive this offense is. I think this offense might be a little bit better than I thought it was going to be. Uh, I, I'm looking right now at – you know, the week four S&P Plus ratings that Bill Connolly puts out. And without the preseason projections in there, Penn State is the second best team in the country by S&P Plus, uh, second only to uh, the Fighting Bulldogs at Mississippi State, which uh, took it to LSU last week. But even then, Penn State is, by S&P Plus, the fourth best team in the country. I think that... That was probably not quite where I expected them to be. I mean, I expected Alabama to be ahead of them. I expected Ohio State to be ahead of them. I expected Clemson to be ahead of them, but somehow they fell after just taking it to Lamar Jackson. And these last... Penn State has just looked like the kind of team that is built to win against almost any team as long as it's all clicking. And we even saw in the pit game that even when it's not all clicking, when Trace McSorley has, by his standards, a not great game, when Saquon Barkley needs some time to get going, uh, when the defense is on the field for a long time, Penn State can still win games by a fairly comfortable margin. So I think that was something that uh, that I wasn't really expecting. But the, uh, the only other thing, Nick, I'm very terrified of this, and I need you to talk me down from the ledge. Uh, and I'm not actually terrified. I just want Nick to go off on this because it's fun. But Penn State is just getting railed in time of possession, man. And to me, uh, time of possession is just scaring the heck out of me. Tell me why that's not something I should be concerned about. You don't need to be concerned about it because Penn State's offense scores quickly. It's not it. Time of possession is a very worthwhile stat, but it 
it alone does not determine the outcome of games. If you've ever listened to podcast and play Nobody, they used they used to they don't really do it much anymore. Play a uh, blind box score bingo, where basically Stephen Godfrey will read off the box score of a game without filling in um, scores or the teams and. Bill tries to guess what, not you, Bill, Bill Connolly tries to guess basically what the story of the game was. And so often the games that are submitted are ones that kind of look like the games that Penn State plays in the in terms of time of possession, where the team that loses it has this big advantage on the time of possession and maybe has, um, I don't know, that that's not the point. But time of possession is a notable thing but it does not tell the entire story of an offense all this all this really means is that penn state scores quickly and when you pair the time of possession with the fact that penn state has given up 14 total points on the season it just means their defense is really good at slowly sucking the life out of teams it's is by no in no means is it a indicator that things are going to turn sour for Penn State. In fact, the time of possession probably could start to even out a little bit as the competition improves and other teams eventually do start scoring and uh, they end up taking getting the ball back to Penn State a little bit quicker. So it's, especially at this point in the year, it's a pretty meaningless statistic for a team like Penn State. Yeah, and the thing that, the, the thing that I'm thinking about when you mention those time of possession numbers is I don't care so much about the offense, like Penn state's offense is Penn state's offense, whatever the concern. I think most people would say is on the defensive side of the ball where, you know, the last two games, Penn state's opponents have had the ball for at least 38 minutes worth of the 60 on the game clock. And, you know, you would think that if that happens over the course of the year, like if Iowa keeps the ball, that long, if Indiana keeps the ball that long, Northwestern, Michigan, Ohio State, whatever. I, I think Michigan and Iowa are probably the only teams that are going to want to hold on to the football that one, that long. Yeah, like that. Like that's when it becomes a concern because over the course of the season, maybe the defense wears down. But through two games, we have seen that Penn State's defense is able three to games. three. Well, through three games, but in two games. Let me rephrase that. In two uh-huh. games, we've seen that Penn State's defense is more than willing to stay on the field and do whatever it has to. Penn State is almost saying, we will, we will let you have the ball because we know you're not going to get anything too easily on our defense. And I think that's a very encouraging sign. And like you said, as teams start scoring because uh, Georgia State and uh, Akron and especially Pitt, which uh, I'm going to pull up the uh, – let's see – Rank without freezing prediction. Where is Pitt? Uh, Pitt is the 122nd best team in college football out of 130. So when I look at stuff like this, like you said, Nick, I think other teams are going to start scoring a little bit more. Penn State's going to get the ball a little bit more. Time of possession is going to even out. Whatever. That's going to be fine. But again, it's not something that I'm too terribly concerned about. And speaking of things I'm not concerned about, I'm thinking about recruiting right now, Nick. Because let me tell you, I think Penn State looks like it's in a pretty good spot for a few kids. A few kids who have the potential to be really, really good football players, who have the potential to step in and make an impact for more or less day one. So I got a list of five recruits, five recruits that Penn State is, as far as we know, going after with varying degrees of interest and uh, aggressiveness and whatnot. We're going to go from lowest ranked to highest ranked. The lowest ranked kid is the number 158 kid in the nation. So that's the caliber of recruits we're talking about. And I just want to know your thoughts on where you think they're going to end up, where you think Penn State stands with them. What do you think the next however long of the recruitments are going to look like, that sort of thing. So let's start uh, New Jersey defensive end Jason Owa, who was in town uh, this past weekend for the Georgia State game. So the fact that Owa, Owa, don't remember how to say it, um, was willing to drive up to Happy Valley despite having a game that I think started at like 2 o'clock for him and was still willing to drive over and uh, come up and visit the game when he has his official visit still coming up for Penn State. And the weekend. Yeah, I was going to say. The, yeah, the weekend after taking his official visit at Ohio State 
in a game where Ohio State lost to Oklahoma is encouraging for Penn State, for sure. Uh, they The Nittany Lions were the very early leaders for Owe back uh, when he really started garnering attention. And granted, it, it was kind of a, he visits this school, they're his top school. He visits this school, they're now his top school kind of thing. But Penn State was really one of the first big names to stick out with him and one of the first ones that he named as one of his leaders. So it's it looks pretty good for Penn State right now. The thing with all these guys that is important to note is that I think it, if things stood the way they are right now, Penn State already would be over their um, total scholarship limit for the roster, I believe. So they're really counting – like. It, it's a very uncertain landscape of the roster right now with how many guys are going to transfer, how many guys are going to leave early, how many guys are they going to bring in in this class. So all, all of these questions are kind of difficult to answer at the moment as far as where they'll end up in regards to Penn State because there's so much still in the air. Um, I'll answer them just based on um, in a perfect world just where what school would each of these kids choose at this point in my opinion so um right now i think penn state probably has the lead for oa i think uh if he was going to commit today it would be penn state but there is still time so we'll see what happens with where he ends up visiting what he does um between now and his official visit to penn state but i think it looks, looks good for the Nittany lines right now yeah so on oa I, I think I know what your answer is going to be for this, but his official visit is on November 18th, so two months from now. Uh, like you said, a lot can happen during that time. Do you think that, if you had to guess, because I want to stress that like you're, you don't know for sure on this, if you had to guess listening to your gut, when he comes to Penn State on November 18th, is he coming as an uncommitted recruit? Um, yes. All right. Very good. Moving up. Next kid, Rashid Walker, offensive lineman from Maryland. So this is a tough one because I know I just said I wouldn't talk about the space issues, but, um, I won't, but hey, I, won't here's talk about space them issues. In, I won't talk about them in the roster sense. I'll talk about them in the as far as what the class has and what the class doesn't have. And what this what this recruiting class doesn't have a lot of right now is defensive linemen. I mean, it has it has some really good ones, but they want more. The plan was always to get more defensive linemen in this class because they brought in they brought in four offensive linemen in last year's class. They brought it at least three, maybe four, the class before. So they already have um, Nana Asiedu, Frederick Scruggs, Bryce Effner, and Antoine Reed on the offensive line in this class. And of those guys, uh, Asiedu is a true tackle. Um, Scruggs is a true guard, and Effner and Reed are both swing guys. Could go either go, could go outside or inside. Rashid Walker is a tackle, and while he's really, really talented, it it feels like he may be running out of time to commit if he hasn't already. They it just seems like the staff is way more focused on these defensive guys right now because that's the real area of need. And while I think if Walker called them up tomorrow and said, Hey, I want to commit. I, I think they probably say, okay, but the fact that it's even a hesitation that we're not sure is probably not a great sign. The longer it drags out, I think the more likely it is that he ends up at Maryland, but it's, it's it's hard it's hard to say right now, but my gut would my gut right now would say not Penn State. Yeah, and looking at uh, the defensive line class, it on one hand yes it has three guys right now, but uh, four guys right now. But of those four, PJ Mustafer, defensive tackle, Anus Hawk, Aeneas Hawkins, apologies, defensive did tackle. That. I did that. <laughs> you did I'm the sorry. thing on his video. <laughs> I did. Yeah, I, I'm sorry. I am uh, I am stand up comedian Gary Owen or whatever his name is. Aeneas Hawkins, defensive tackle, and Judge Culpepper, probably a defensive tackle. So the only yep. like true defensive end left is Dorian Hardy, and all three of the defensive line guys we're about to talk talk about, Ola plus the next two, are defensive ends. So keep that in mind. And moving on to the next guy, someone who I'm actually, like, I think that Penn State's in, 
interest in him being reciprocated is kind of amazing because he is right in Ohio State's backyard. That's four-star uh, Cleveland defensive end Tyreek Smith. Yeah, and Smith actually will probably end up being a defensive tackle. He's just too big. I'm, I'm not sure he'll be able to stay at end. Um, not that he couldn't do it, but he'll, he's probably more of a defensive tackle when all is said and done. But yeah, like you said, he. this is kind of one where early on it felt like, oh, well, it's really nice that this uh, Cleveland kid is giving Penn State this attention. Oh, yeah, his top two is Ohio State and Penn State. We all we know how that goes. He'll he'll keep Penn State in until the very end, but then he'll end up at Ohio State. It seems like Smith is really, really considering coming to Penn State. Um, I'm going to pull up his crystal ball percentages real quick. I don't remember what they are off the top of my head, so but I know um, I remember them 247 sports. I'm pretty sure I remember them off the top of my head. I think it's 20 predictions. 19 of which are for Ohio State, but the most recent one is from uh, Steve Wolfong of 24-7, and it's Penn State. Yes, you are correct. Um, yeah, so Steve Wolfong, obviously very plugged in. Um, very good guy, also. Uh, very plugged in the situation. Oh, hold on, hold on. Talk- Nick, hold, hold on. I have, I'm just picking up this name that you just dropped. Uh, good one. Um, but he... He's very, very plugged in, very in the know. So when he puts a crystal ball pick in, you have to pay attention to it. That being said, there's still there's still a um, a finishing touch to be put on by the Penn State staff here, especially considering where Smith is coming from. Um, and you know that with with both of these guys and the third one that we're going to talk about in a second, all seemingly trending towards Penn State right now, you know that Urban Meyer and Ohio State are going to say, look, we yeah. need to get at least one of these guys, yeah. and they're really going to zero in. And it could end up being Smith they zero yeah. in on. And in that case, it's going to be it's going to be a rock fight to yeah. <laughs> to grab him. But Listen, if, if there are three kids available and you're going to be fighting with another school for all three of those kids and you feel like you can only zero in on one of them, Odds are you would want to zero in on the kid from your backyard. Especially when Meyer has already gotten an increasing amount of heat, not from people who really matter necessarily, but just chatter about, well, why isn't he taking more Ohio kids? He's he's kind of he's going down the south more. The ratios are starting to skew a little more. It, it doesn't matter. You get the best kids you can get, but for Ohio State fans who are so used to Jim Tressel just grabbing every talented kid in Ohio he could fit in the class and then supplementing with kids from elsewhere, whereas Urban Meyer is pretty much more of a 50-50 approach. He gets about half the class from Ohio if he can and then pulls the other half from Texas and Georgia and Florida. Um, they're just for... Uh, publicity reasons, I guess it would probably be a good move for him to really zero in on Tyreek Smith, but it also depends on what they need because Smith is Smith again is a pretty much a hybrid between defensive tackle and defensive end, probably destined for defensive tackle. Whereas uh, OA and our next our next friend are <laughs> more edge rush types. Yeah. So right this second, I um. Right this second, if you asked me, I would say, I'd say he's probably I the think he the ends to, up at Ohio State. I'd say he's probably the hardest of the three to kind of like key in on. If yeah, I think he's the one. I think he is the one that Urban Meyer eventually real really settles in and says yeah. we need to get this guy. So I would say Ohio State. All right, Nick. Time for the final defensive commit, possible defensive commit, and um, this has been a weird one. This is. I don't think there's another way to say this other than it's been very weird following the recruitment of Micah Parsons, but he was back in town this weekend. Uh, His crystal ball activity is trending Penn State. His perceived three schools that he's looking at, the hardest are Penn State, Ohio State, and Nebraska. It seems like he is focusing on Penn State. One of these things is not like the other. Yeah, uh, one of them hasn't lost to Oklahoma this year. Uh, or two of them have lost Oklahoma this year. Uh, but yeah, in all seriousness, Nebraska looks like it's just a disaster right now. Ohio State, we don't know what's up there necessarily. And it seems almost like Parsons is really focused on Penn State lately. 
he seems to me like the kid who, and, and I don't know how to phrase this, but it almost seems like if there's going to be an odd man out, it might end up being him just because he has the most options available to him. I think if Parsons, I think if he ends up being an odd man out, and when we say that, we mean wants to commit and can't because of space issues or the staff just says no. I think the only way that happens is if he continues to drag out his recruitment all the way till um, signing day, signing day, not early signing day. Um, because at that point, Penn State probably won't have space anymore, depending on what their other targets are doing. Um. So, I mean, I guess we can fill in real quickly for those of you that for those that aren't on Twitter. Um, last week during the Ohio State, or during, I guess it was after. I don't remember when it actually happened, but uh, in the aftermath, or as a result of the Ohio State Oklahoma game, Micah Parsons and uh, a few other recruits were tweeting things out about how uh, JT Barrett needed to be benched in lieu of Dwayne Haskins and. Um, Kirk Herbstreet was tweeting at uh, Jackson Carmen, a really high-profile high offensive tackle recruit from Ohio. Um, people were tweeting at Micah Parsons, and right after all that stuff went down, and we found out um, that Herb, Urban Meyer was asked in a press conference if he saw the tweet from Parsons, and he just said something like, "I was yes, I was made aware of it. Almost seemingly right after that, Parsons came out and said, I'm heading up to Happy Valley this weekend. Who's coming with? And from there, it it's just been an avalanche of pro-Penn State um, thoughts and sentiments from Parsons on Twitter and through interviews. And it's, it's just very indicative of how his entire recruitment has gone. He's a very um, emotionally driven kid, I would say. He's a good kid. I, I do really enjoy talking with him. Um, he he's he's very much just taking this process taking every little thing into account he's he's not he's not necessarily he's not keeping all these thoughts what we see a lot of guys do we just keep, see them just give the diplomatic answers to questions when they do interviews and process everything behind the scenes and then explain everything in the end when they make their commitment whereas with parsons we've seen him pretty much go through his entire process, his entire thought-making process, his feelings, where he's visiting, his thoughts on the coaches. Everything has been very public. That's one of the reasons that it's been such an interesting recruitment to watch. And it's not hard to draw the logical line between, I think that I said something about how Ohio State starting quarterback should get benched. Kind of seems like someone on the Ohio staff maybe said, hey, or somebody told him, hey, just let coaches do their job. And then he immediately said, OK, I'm going to go visit Penn State now. I don't know. I'm fielding any lines now. So it's it's not hard to draw that line. And the fact that he was already committed to Penn State once, I think, will make the coaches a little weary of accepting a commitment from him while they have two other guys on the board. Now, if one of if one of Smith or OA is committed to Ohio State or they feel like they don't have a chance with them, I don't think it's not even a hesitation. They ought, they take Parsons without a thought. But I think just because they don't want to get they won't want to get burned by him again, I think they will be a little hesitant to accept a commitment from him if he wants to do so. But it, it's really just it's really all about timing with him. And it it's it's impossible to know when he's gonna be ready to make that decision, whether it'll be before signing day. He said that he wants to do it on signing day. He said at one point he said he wanted to sign for the early signing period. So he said everything. So it's really total wild card in every single sense of the phrase. Yeah, I, he almost seems like I don't know if I would be shocked if you know, if in two weeks he goes, hey, I made up my mind. I'm go. I want to go to this place. I want to commit. I want to see if they'll take me. Or if you know he does decide to draw it out, or he does decide to make sure he's absolutely ready and wait until the last possible moment and do it on signing. Like whatever. I know signing day technically isn't the last possible moment either here nor there. But whatever is happening with him, like it just seems like he. 
he's almost waiting until he is 110% sure about something. And for a school to be 110% sure, they're ready for him. And they want to take him on, and they're... That, that makes it sound a lot worse than, than what I, we probably think it is. But I, I hope you all know what I mean by that. He, it just seems like such an interesting recruitment process where there's no end in sight, and that doesn't mean the end is going to be a long way away. Speaking of someone who the end for them may take a while, our final commit, hopeful commit, that we're going to be talking about during this segment, Nick... It is time to talk Justin Fields. Hmm. Yeah, I, th- this is weird because if I were to say to you, uh, you know, a week ago, let's talk about Justin Fields in this space, I, I think you would have laughed at me. But for whatever reason, it doesn't seem like Penn State's 110% out of this. I... <sighs> Okay, so my thoughts on Fields remain the same as they have been for the last however many weeks. I think he is going to either Florida State or I think he is going to Georgia. The only thing that I think and could end up complicating this is, one, at Florida State, um, the injury to DeAndre Francois. Because barring the committee being terrible people francois is going to get a medical redshirt for this season and he is going to have at least three years left if he wants to play all of them um actually side note if you start as a true freshman get a medical redshirt year play as a i guess you just be a redshirt sophomore does that still count as your do you still go to the nfl right after that i believe he could yeah Okay, so <clears throat> at the very least, it's one. It's it's just something else to think about there because Francois then has the option. Perhaps his timeline is pushed back a little more. I don't think he's going to be a guy that jumps to the NFL after one more year, especially coming off of injury. But you never know. So perhaps that makes the proposition of playing time at Florida State just a little murkier. Same thing at Georgia. Not only now is Jacob Eason going to get a medical redshirt and he'll be his timeline could be pushed back a little bit but now with the emergence of jake emergence of jake from now georgia kind of has two guys that it seems like they can really trust at that spot and where does fields fit in behind those guys so it's what appears to be the two what appear to be the two driving factors behind his recruitment right now are proximity to home and early playing time because if it was just purely based on system and fit and relationships, I think he'd still be committed to Penn State. Because they're the ones who got on him early. They're the ones he there's a quote a while back that somebody asked him which offenses does he think suit him best, and he said Florida State and Penn State. And that was after he decommitted. So I don't think Fields is a really smart kid. I think he understands that he's a perfect fit for Joe Moorhead's offense or whoever ends up taking over for Joe Moorhead when he eventually moves on if he does unless he pulls a Brent Venables which would be awesome but I have a hard time getting over the uh, proximity to home factor here because it really seems like Fields and his family are very tight-knit his sister goes to Georgia now his family obviously is in Georgia he's from Kennesaw shout out Jason Kirk Um, so I, I don't I, I don't think he ends back up here. If he takes an official visit to Penn State, sure. Maybe there's a chance that if they stick him in a room with Justin Shorter and Ricky Slade and Nana Asiedu and Zach Kuntz and whoever else is around at that time, maybe they convince him to come back. But right this second, if you ask me, I still, despite what I said about the new situations with their quarterbacks, I still think he ends up at one of Florida State or Georgia. Yeah, I mean, I'm. Uh, I don't think we have to put this on the record, but we're going to be very clear in saying it would be, it would be very cool if Justin Short, not well, if Justin Shorter came to Penn State. Yes, just, it, he is very good, and I'm happy that he's going to be here. But it would also be very cool if Justin Fields came to Penn State, and like I think there's probably kind of what you mentioned. He's a smart kid, and there's almost definitely 
a very tiny voice in the back of his head. One that could be drowned out by a bunch of other voices, I would imagine. But there has to be the one going, when you were Justin Fields, this kid that nobody has ever heard of, who was like some low four-star. Well, he, he, was, he was still a four-star kid. Some, Yeah, he was like a lower four-star kid. Like he wasn't... Yeah, he was like a 92-something. Yeah. When you were that, and the schools that were on you were North Carolina, all the North Carolina schools, and Appalachian State, and Northwestern, and Harvard, and Vanderbilt, when it was those schools, the big school that came in and said, we want to build a program around you is Penn State. And Penn State made him a priority, and he got to a point where he went, that's a school I want to commit to, that's a school I want to play for. And then, of course, some other things happen where he blows up and suddenly, like you said, the proximity to home things comes in and he becomes a big target for Auburn and Florida State and Georgia and LSU and all these schools. But I would imagine that little voice is in the back of his head. My guess is it ends up getting drowned out, but it'd be very cool if it didn't. And uh, yeah, that'd be fun. I like him a lot. I think we're done with recruiting. Let's very quickly go through the Big Ten this week. First up, uh, South Florida beat Illinois. Illinois is very bad. I have nothing else to say about this game. We were right. We were right. Uh, speaking of games we were right about, I think we both predicted that uh, Air Force was going to give Michigan some problems, and I know the game ended 29-13. to 13. Let me tell you, I watched basically this entire game. Michigan's either Air Force's defense is a lot better than you would probably expect for a service academy, or Michigan's offense has some real serious problems. Yeah, I I mean I don't think that was anything surprising that um, Michigan's defense or Michigan's offense has has been disappointing. Has been sorry, they're I clicked it on something, music auto played, and I couldn't talk and listen to that at the oh, same God. time. Oh um, God. Yeah, that was difficult. We were already worried about, well, not worried, happy about Michigan's offense being subpar. Um, I, I mean, I thought it would look a little better against Air Force than it did, but Wilton Spade really, really average. And now with Isaac Hurd, I'm not sure what the situation is there, but it could get a little dicey for the Wolverines now, especially with our new favorite team on tap for next week. Nick, take a guess at Air, even after this week's game, Air Force's defensive S&P Plus. After this game? Yes, after this game in which, uh, da, 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 pulling this up right now, after this game in which Michigan's offense uh, scored uh, 29 points and they might have had a defensive touchdown or two in there. They had the punt um, return. They had a punt return touchdown, yes, and had 359 total yards and a touchdown. 89th. 89th? Okay. You were wrong. They're 112th. Oh, I was going to say 102nd, so it would have been even closer. Yeah. Yeah, that's not good. No, not. A, and I, for, you know, they have to come play a night game in Happy Valley. And listen, it's totally possible that as the season goes on and they get closer to that game, uh, Donovan Peoples Jones and uh, Tarek Black aren't playing like freshmen anymore. And they're able to make that a lot more terrifying. But as of right now, I'm kind of struggling to see how Michigan's able to move the ball on Penn State. Uh, but in the other service academy game, Ohio State 38-7 over Army. Um, I think Ohio State needed basically that exact game. JT Barrett 25 for 33, 270 yards. Add another 32 yards on the ground. 32 yards on the ground with three total scores. J.K. Dobbins 13 carries, 172 yards. Two touchdowns. Um, I, yeah, I, I don't think there's too terribly much to get take away from this other than I think Ohio State needed to get a 31-ish point win against uh, against maybe the best of the three service. Uh, no, maybe it's probably still better against a pretty solid service academy. Yeah, I mean, Urban Meyer was definitely sweating a little bit in that first half. It was 17 to seven at the break. Uh, Buckeyes pulled away in the second half, but. Even though they ended up with the thirty-one point victory, I, probably there was probably there was a hope that it would be a little more. Um, Army's 
definitely a better team than the one that Penn State fans remember from 2015. I think they played. Yeah, 20. Yeah, 2015 was the game where Army like, like they could have driven down the field to win the game if yeah they didn't fumble the ball. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, definitely a bounce back game for Ohio State. Uh, good outing for Barrett. Had some re- threw some really nice passes. He still missed on a number of passes, and I it's it's safe to say that the freshman J T Barrett is just probably completely gone at this point. But he did throw some really nice passes and um, did some good things with his legs. So that's a really good step in the right direction for them. Yeah. Wisconsin truck BYU. Uh, I think Alex. Yeah, Alex Hornibrook had himself a seriously seriously good day 18 for 19 256 four touchdowns uh wisconsin was able to run the ball well byu couldn't do anything yeah whatever wisconsin is good and byu is not whatever uh speaking of teams that are not good northern illinois beat nebraska nebraska is um yeah tanner lee nebraska is trash Tanner Lee, 25-47, 299 yards, no touchdowns, three interceptions. As a team, Nebraska, 36 carries, 85 yards. Northern Illinois wasn't exactly lighting the world on fire, but they did just enough uh, to end up winning this game. They had two pick sixes. I, 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 Yeah, I, I don't think Nebraska is very good. And I think that, yeah. I'm not. It's going to be really, quite. Yeah. It's going to be quite the turnaround when Tanner Lee wins his Heisman. Yeah, that three-game streak of Wisconsin, Ohio State at Purdue is going to be weird as hell because Wisconsin's going to beat them up. Ohio State's going to do Ohio State things to them. Then they get a week off, and then they're going to go face the wood chipper that is Purdue football. So I'm, uh, yeah, yeah, Nebraska's not good. Uh, Minnesota beat up on Middle Tennessee State. I have absolutely nothing to say about this. Nope. Loved that. Loved the uniforms, though. Oh, yeah, with the weird smiley gopher on the face. That was Mm -hmm. on the helmet. Yeah. Uh, Iowa, 31-14. Akrabwadwi, I believe, got banged up. I need to uh, quickly double-check that, so please give me one moment while I wait for the Google machine. Uh, yeah, he was. He and James Butler both got injured. I don't know exactly how badly they did. I'll look that up while Nick's talking. Uh, Why we got screwed out of a touchdown because the NCAA doesn't believe in the concept of fun. Uh, Nathan Stanley was fine, and I was backs other than uh, Butler and Wadley, Torin Young and Ivory Kelly Martin both ran the ball pretty well. We'll have uh, our pal, hopefully our pal Pat Vin on a little bit later this week to talk about this more, but. Iowa through three games, Nick. They're three and zero. They kind of look like they have something of a shot in the arm on the offensive side of the football. Of course, Wyoming, Iowa State, and North Texas are, uh, you know, they're no Akron, Pitt, and uh, Georgia State, but whatever. And you I mean think, Akron, Akron, and Akron. But um, yeah, I we'll talk about this a little bit more later in the week. I'm not too worried too terribly worried about Penn State going into Iowa City for this game. But, you know, Iowa credit through three weeks, they've looked pretty good. Yeah, Stanley's looked uh, looked very good for most of the time. Um, they haven't gotten in a game where they really had to pass to win yet, so that's, I mean, that'll be the case against Penn State most likely, so that'll be interesting. But, yeah, they look pretty good. Defense has been pretty strong. Yeah, looking at the... Uh at a write-up from yesterday's game, Wadley ankle injury, Butler arm injury. Uh, Wadley was on the sidelines in uniform uh, for the end of the game. No idea what the status is with them, but yeah, hopefully everything's all right with them. Because even though I would like it if Penn State trucks them in that game, they're Wadley at the very least is just a joy to watch. Moving on, Rutgers sixty-five to nothing over Morgan State. I have nothing to add other than. I had Rutgers in my Big Ten survival pool, so thank you, Rutgers. Now I don't have to pick you in any games at any other point this season. Thank you, Rutgers, for continuing to continuing to be extremely confusing. 
Well, no, they're not confusing. They just played uh, an FCS team that isn't good. Yeah, but even I mean, Rutgers scored sixty-five points. Well, I believe I don't care how I don't care how bad a team it is. I believe they are kind of prone to doing this against bad teams. I like I'm going to look at their schedule right now, but I, if I remember correctly, last year they like beat the doors off of Howard or something like that. Uh, yeah, fifty-two well, to fourteen. Is there's there's no rhyme. There's no rhyme or reason to looking decent to good against Washington, horrific against Eastern Michigan, and then great against Morgan State. There's just no. There's no consistency there. Yeah, they, at all. Fifty-two fourteen last year against Howard. The year before that, sixty-three thirteen against Norfolk State. The year before that, oh, 30, 38-25 against Howard. So, yeah, they they've been known to do this. They've been known to. Do, beat up on an FCS team and then just, you know, Rutgers all over the place during the non-con, but we'll worry about that later. Uh, Next up, Northwestern, Bowling Green, Northwestern, Clayton Thorson, 372 touchdowns, Justin Jackson, 121 and three touchdowns. Uh, I didn't watch this game. It was on during the Penn State game, so I didn't pay a lick of attention to it, but, you know, after getting wiped out by Duke last week, this is a good way for... Northwestern to get a win before uh, they have a week off this week, and then they have to go to Wisconsin, and then they host Penn State, and then have to go to Maryland. Yeah. Um, Northwestern is a football team. They very much are a football team. And then let's end by talking about a team that is not a football team, but is more of a way of life, the Purdue Boilermakers, 35-3 to over Missouri. David Blau. It's a lifestyle choice. <laughs> David Blau, 187 yards and a touchdown. Uh, Tario Fuller, 90 yards on the ground and a touchdown. I, Purdue's defense was awesome. Missouri had 203 yards of total offense. The time of possession in this game was 43-43 for Purdue and 16-17 for Missouri. Um, yeah, this Purdue might... I don't know if they're actually good or if they're just, you know, just a really fun team, but we're learning a lot about them next week because they host Michigan in a game that, um, you know what, I think if you've listened to this podcast long enough, you do not have to guess who I want to win that game. Well, hey, if you, I mean, if you look at Purdue's got a bowl game in the crosshairs now, they have two wins. They, let's see, of games that are winnable for them. We'll say that they probably won't be Michigan. Um, after that, they have Minnesota. Eh, maybe. They have Rutgers a couple weeks after that. They have Nebraska right after Rutgers. They have Illinois right after Nebraska. Indiana to end the season. Northwestern's mixed in there. It's not, I mean, they looked good enough on offense. It's not totally out of the question yeah. that they could sneak into a bowl game. Yeah, I mean, if we're looking for four wins... Minnesota at home, at Rutgers, Nebraska at home, Illinois at home, Indiana at home, at Northwestern. Like, there is a path to them winning uh, enough games to make it to a bowl. And, yeah, yeah, I mean, I would very much like it if Purdue brought their, especially if they were going up against one of those, like, kooky Big send 12 them, or Pac-12. No, 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 no. Sent just send them wherever they need to be so they can be on a beach. So we get per- picture. So we get video and pictures of Purdue Pete scaring children oh, on the beach. I was going to say hopefully they play like Texas Tech or Washington State or some other team that doesn't believe in the concept of running the football. But yeah, sure that works too. No, no. I want I want small children coming out of the ocean, rubbing their eyes to see, and the first thing they see, Purdue Purdue Pete's face. Yeah. Well. We've been going on for a while. James Franklin just tweeted, Filming corrections have been made. Now it's time to turn our complete attention to Iowa, 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 Iowa. It was a lot harder to say than I thought. And I think it's time to wrap up this edition of the podcast. As always, thank you very much for listening. Make sure you go out and you subscribe. Uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Overcast, whatever you use. Leave us a review on iTunes. If you want to give us five stars, we appreciate that. If you don't want to give us five stars, please lie to us and give us five stars. Uh, keep following us on social media at RLR blog, Roar Lions Roar on Facebook. We're doing some more stuff on Instagram, so check us out there. Keep reading the site. Keep buying our shirts. If you were the person who... So, a quick story on the shirts. Myself and 
uh, our friend, uh, Mr. Dr. Pizza, MD, named, he's Joe M on Twitter. You probably know him because he's just a wonderful person. We both wore our Tuddies shirts into the All-American Rathskeller on Friday night before an evening of uh, fun and friendship. And immediately upon walking in, someone came up to us and she said, Tuddies are awesome. Where can I buy that shirt? And we sold her a shirt. So if you were the person who bought that shirt and you are listening, one, God bless you for making it an hour into this podcast. But two, thank you for buying that shirt. And everyone, be like her. Buy a shirt. It's going to look really great on you. And yeah. And you should buy another one, random person. Yeah, just everyone. If you already have a shirt, buy more. We have plenty of shirts, and we want you to have all of them uh, for reasons other than, you know, we benefit from you buying as many shirts as possible. Neither here nor there. One last time, thank you very much for listening to this edition of Roar Lions Radio. For Nick Pollock, I am Bill DeFilippo. Take care, everyone. And remember, tutties is not a word.